0: Here's a question. If you knew that the world was going to end, that Jesus was going to return next Tuesday at about 1.37 p.m., what would you do? Think about it for a second, seriously. If you thought Jesus was going to return next Tuesday at about 1.37 p.m., what would you do? Would you think, well, I'm sure not going to work for the next 10 days, and I don't think I'm even going to brush my teeth, and there ain't no chance that I'm going to make the bed or get my oil changed. Why would I? It's likely that I'm going to co-opt the words of that famous country music singer who Hutch could probably tell me who it is, and I can't remember who said take this job and shove it. Johnny paycheck. Johnny paycheck. <laughs> Hutch has a voluminous knowledge of all things country. <laughs> Thank you, Hutch. Johnny paycheck. Some of you might think I got to start I got to start evangelizing fiercely. Maybe you got some bucket list items you need to take care of. You might go skydiving. I've never never been to Disney World. Maybe take off to Orlando. Because, you know, it's all about to go. You're about to be jet-packed into heaven, right? Well, it's an interesting question because it is the reality... Well, the part about Tuesday at 1.37 we're not so sure about, but the reality under which we all live here one week after celebrating the resurrection and 2,000 years after its actual occurrence is that we all live in a time where our Lord could return at any point. We don't know when. Be suspicious, of course, biblically, if someone tells you Jesus is coming back next Tuesday at 1.37 because Jesus has told us that no one can tell us that, just to be clear. But in a passage where Paul is on the verge of explaining some critical information, some reassuring theology about Jesus' return, the second coming, and the renovation of all things, it's very interesting to me the particular advice that he gives to some people who had a kind of mentality like, hey... Jesus is going to return next Tuesday at 1.37 p.m. So I'm sure not going to work. I'm calling in sick that day. I'm waiting and I'm watching. And I might even eat a Twinkie. What does it matter? And here's what the Apostle Paul says. That's so unbelievable to me. It's so unspiritual. It's so boring. It's so normal. It's almost like, Paul, did you not meet the resurrected Jesus? Don't you know about spiritual things? And he says this, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, to mind your own business, to work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. So in other words, Paul says, if you happen to know that Jesus is returning next Tuesday at 1.37 p.m., here's what you ought to do. Go to work in the morning. Pay your insurance premiums. Brush your teeth. Cook supper. Call your client back who left you a message. Finish the deal. Work hard all day long at your job. That's not fun. Doesn't that seem kind of a letdown? Well, I hope not, but it might. It's intriguing to me to listen to the Apostle Paul because here is what he helps us with. He helps us to understand how to live an ordinary day. Walker Percy always talked about how difficult it is for people to make it through an ordinary Wednesday afternoon. We like exciting things. We like to anticipate cataclysmic things, apocalyptic things. And the Apostle Paul says, if you think apocalyptic things are coming, you know what you ought to do? Don't call in sick. Go to Blue Cross Blue Shield. Put in a day's work. Work at your tech job. Finish your studies, young man and young woman. Read your reading assignments. Work hard at basketball practice. You know why? Let's see, because for the Apostle Paul, what we celebrated last week was the beginning of something new. It was the beginning of the last days. The last days have been going on for 2,000 years. And for 2,000 years, something else happened. Something like what we mentioned last week. When God spoke the world into being, Adam, the first Adam, who was representative for all people everywhere, well, he was sort of a, a proxy test taker for us, who failed his SATs. He did abysmally on his ACTs, and therefore his failure brokered, spread out like a virus to all humans, and none of us can get into God's college now. Because of our poor scores, the poor scores of Adam. Well, but here's the thing that Paul envisioned, and all the New Testament writers talk this way, is that Jesus was somehow the new Adam. When he rose from the dead, a new creation started. A new world started happening right then. The future, where God is going to make the whole world new, started again that day. By the man that, Jesus, that God rose from the dead, who had a body. And therefore, the Apostle Paul who had all these extraordinary experiences, maybe like you, where you were driving to school one day in your car, and then all of a sudden you smashed into Jesus, and you, your airbag deployed, and you fell out, and you were blind, and Jesus was saying, why are you ignoring me? Did that, has any, that happened to any of you? I hope it hasn't, because you'd be freaked out. But if it has, tell me. But it did happen to the Apostle Paul. Jesus confronted him. Jesus commissioned him. Jesus undid his life. He had profound and extraordinary experiences with God. He talks about being teleported in a vision to a third heaven and seeing things that people ought not to be able to see. Things that were so fantastic that if he wasn't somehow subdued in them, he would, he'd become arrogant. He saw all that kind of stuff. He lived all that kind of life... And then he can say things like this. If you're an indentured servant and you work for a master, even one who's not really that nice and he's not very affirming and he's got a low emotional intelligence, still obey them. Still, still clean out the stall like they ask. Still change the kitchen around like they've asked you to do. Still make the food the same way they've asked you to do. Because you're not really working ultimately for them, but for a master that will be your master forever and ever and ever for the next one gazillion years. Obey them not only to win their favor when their eye is on you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart, serve wholeheartedly as if you were serving the Lord, not men, because you know the Lord will reward everyone for whatever good he does, whether he is slave or free. For Paul, living in the new creation... With a resurrected Savior who is now our King, who is ruling all things and making all things new, it transforms all kinds of work. So that no matter what you're doing, no matter your play or your rest or your work, every single ounce of it is an occasion for honoring your King. It all can be an act of worship. Underwriting a policy, finishing a contract, changing a diaper. It's all done before the king of the new world, who's broken into this world. And so Paul doesn't have to say, go out and do spiritually good things all the time. He can say, the stuff that you have to do for nine-tenths of your waking life, which is called going to work for most of you. You realize that? Most of you spend most of your working day at an office someplace? Do you think that God's intention for you is to serve Him somewhere else other than that? Some of you really do. It causes you a lot of consternation inside. I'm here today to set you free. Because I think Paul would want to set you free. Because I think Jesus would want to set you free. I think the manifold chorus of voices in the scriptures is this you serve Christ in all the things you do every single one of them and they're all occasions for God's notice, they're all occasions for you to do good to others they're all occasions for you to with a heart who recognizes you're serving before an audience of one to do good even if the person you work for is bad It's been said by Justin Martyr who was a third century, or second century rather, church father, about a hundred years after Jesus' life, that there were in Nazareth plows that farmers were using that had been constructed by Joseph and Jesus. Now, I've spoiled the punchline, but do you know, can you remember how Jesus spent most of his life as a human, in flesh, a God in flesh? Somebody, what was he? He was a carpenter. And for how many years was Jesus a carpenter? 30-ish, yes. And how many years did Jesus become an itinerant Preacher. Who didn't have a job to go to. Three years. This, I think, is relevant. You know, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, God says, this is my son with whom I am pleased, well pleased. He talks about this incredible favor he has at Jesus. And Jesus hadn't even done his ministry yet. He'd just been serving God his whole life in a wood shop. Making good plows for people. Do you think that's relevant? Dorothy Sayers said, what the church should be telling the carpenter is that the very first demand that his religion makes upon him is that he should make good tables. What use... Is all of our teaching if at the very center of a carpenter or a lawyer or a doctor or a teacher or a mom's life and occupation is insulting God with bad carpentry. This is a liberating thing. Some of you covenant students have heard this ad nauseum, I'm sure. But some of the rest of you have not. In your mind, you have to think as you go to work as a salesman, as you go work at the insurance company, as you go work... And construction, as you repair people's electricity. Some of you have to figure out ways. How can I think of this as a ministry? And I would say, here's how you think of it as a ministry. Paul says, go to work. Work well. You're representing Christ in all the things you do. Do you play soccer? Play it well for Christ. Do your training, be in shape. Have good technique. Be a good sport. Because it is your Lord Christ that you are serving. The apostle thought that the resurrection meant that now, whatever you do, whether in word or whether it's in deed, you should do it all for the glory of God. Now, now, when I was letting John Michael know this week about what I would be preaching on this Sunday, I made a slip, a typo. It was Siri's fault. But I realized after I read it, I'd given this long description, and I told him that we were going to be talking about the doctrine of location. And as I read back through, I said to him, Uh, John Michael, sorry, what I meant to say was, we're going to be talking about the doctrine of vocation. There's not really such a thing as a doctrine of location. And John Michael wrote back to me, you know, in a sense disappointed, because he thought, that sounds pretty cool, a doctrine of location. And you know what? He's right. As I thought about it, one of the things that the Apostle Paul is urging these Thessalonians who are tempted to throw off everything, because the end is near, they don't even listen to him. You know, at the end of, at the, end of uh, the next letter to the Thessalonians, which is called the second Thessalonians, at the end they haven't apparently listened to him, and he says, In the name of Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, keep away from every brother who's idle and doesn't live according to the teaching you receive from us. You yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We weren't idle. We didn't eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night laboring and toiling so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have a right to subchelt, but in order to make a model for you to follow. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, if a man will not work, he shall not eat. We hear there are some among you who are idle. They're busy, not busy, they're busy bodies. Such people, we give the unspiritual device to settle down and go to work. See, one of the biggest dangers that will happen to you is not believing in the doctrine of location. But Jesus, because he had a body, lived in how many places at once? One, just like all of you. You can only live in one place at once. He changed the world by living in one place at once. By a life that was surrendered to God and he did apparently everything out of love to God and love to neighbor, which included being a carpenter for 30 years. The big danger that will happen for a lot of you is that you'll, you'll spend a lot of your waking hours at work. And then, you'll have this vague, low-grade guilt fever. I'm not really spiritual. I'm not really serving the Lord. I even get paid for doing this. And... You'll be thinking about other lives that you should have, other kinds of service that you really should be doing if you're really a Christian. And I think Paul would say to you be right smack dab where you are. This is the life where you are called to serve Christ. Tomorrow morning, 8 a.m., you go out as a servant of Jesus. To wherever you happen to work. That's where you serve him. Not in some other life. Not in some other thing. The primary way that most of you will serve your master. Is at the job at which you get paid. It needs no other justification. Only an offering of your heart to the Lord. A recognition. I'm doing this. Because Christ cares about good things being done. And the only way you can get to that is starting to believe this other thing. You might have heard me talk about this before, but do you know we have a teaching? The doctrine of providence. Do you know what providence means? It's not just a place in Rhode Island. God's works of providence, in short form, are how he controls everything all the time. How he makes all of his plans come true. How he takes care of his people and animals and the environment. That's what his providence is. Now, one of the things that Martin Luther gave us, the Lord gave to him in the Protestant Reformation was not only the doctrines of justification by faith, but the priesthood of all believers, which says you're serving Christ. Whether you're cleaning somebody's diaper or whether you're administering the mass. Whether you live in a monastery or whether you're a soccer coach. You're serving Christ in all of these, and none is better than the other. They're all just individual callings, all ways of God planting his concerns for his creation and for people and animals and land everywhere. So Luther could sum it up this way. He said, in the morning, when we pray, give us this day our daily bread. For two hours, there have been people up. They're called bakers. And they've been laboring to make our bread. And so when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, there are people who are actually laboring to make bread for us. And when you say, oh Lord, I need a new shirt. God doesn't often for you, and if he does, I would like to know about it. He probably doesn't say, boom, there's a new cotton garment for you, dear. you're like, wow, this is stunning. I didn't even have to shop or anything. No, when you need a new shirt, you go buy a shirt because there was some person are people who decided to create a company that made clothing and service to people so they could have clothes to wear. And when you need a new house, when you need a place to live, it is not often the case that you say, oh Lord, please give me a place to live. And he says, four walls. Electrical. HVAC. He doesn't do it that way, does he? He gives people skills. And abilities. And they go to work. And they build you a house. They provide you a place. And in so doing, they are representing God's concern for all of his creation. See, this Lewis said it this way. God seems... Well, if he could. He could, if he chose, repair our bodies miraculously without food. He could give us food... Without the aid of farmers or bakers or butchers, he could convert the heathen without missionaries. But instead, he allows soil and weather and animals and muscles, minds and wills of men to cooperate in the execution of his will. It seems you've got to believe this. So that your work seems like it matters. So that you are following Paul's admonition to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and work He seems to do nothing of himself which he can possibly delegate to his creatures. He commands us to do slowly and blunderingly what he could do perfectly. And in the twinkling of an eye, he allows us even to neglect what he would have us do or even to fail. Do you go to work on Monday morning and experience slowly and blunderingly? that some of you, as you're raising children, think, I'm not doing any good in the world. These kids don't listen to anything I say. What's wrong with them? What's wrong with me? We're miserable failures. And yet, for some reason, instead of God just making these little people pop out of the womb, instantaneously righteous and perfect and imaging him in every way, he lets them submit to a process of being governed and loved and nurtured by fools. Like us. Who have to depend on him who have to trust His Spirit, who have to pray, but also have to do things. My goodness, all the doing that you do, if you realize you're an agent of God's providence, you're an instrument of His care, you're showing your love for humanity and all the things you do well. And if you want to learn how much that's true, think about your job and think about somebody who doesn't do it well. Think about how unloving it is when you are... Depending on people who are slipshod in the way they do stuff, who are careless, who are reckless, who are lazy. It's the height of unlove. And it's even tripled in its worstness if that person happens to be a follower of Jesus. Because we are to give honor to him in all the things that we do so that our work will command the respect, we're told, of outsiders. One of my favorite things has become... That's an overstatement. A few years ago, I had the opportunity that kind of scared me then, but as the years have passed, I've become more and more comfortable with it. A young man, a young earnest man came to me. And he was convinced because of the teaching that he had received as a child. Because of the land in which he lived. He was convinced because he loved the Lord. That if he was going to serve him, he had to go into the ministry. The ministry. And as I listened to him, I thought, why on earth would you go to seminary? Don't go to seminary! You know why? Because it didn't occur to me in any way as I talked to this dude that he was cut out. For full-time Christian ministry. You know what he was? He just felt guilty. He just felt somehow like God was disappointed on him because he liked to work with computers. And the greatest joy that I have is being able to liberate people and say, it's meaningful the things you like to do, the skills that you've been given, the work that you've been called to, the place where you live and are, and the family you're in, the talents you've been given, the education you got, and where you presently work today and tomorrow. It's meaningful because Christ is King. And he's placed you there to do his work there. So do it well. Most of you, praise the Lord, are not called to full-time Christian ministry. You're free. Most of you should not go to seminary. Most of you should go to work. And be Christ's people in all the industries of the world. I'll close with this. Dorothy Sayers said these words. Let the church remember this. That every maker and worker is called to serve God in his profession or trade, not outside of it. The apostles rightly complained when they said in Acts 6, it's not right that we should give up the ministry of word and prayer in order to wait on tables. Their vocation was to preach the word. But the person whose vocation it is to prepare meals beautifully... Might with equal justice protest. It is not meet for us to leave the service of our tables. To preach the word. That makes most of you really nervous. It takes very seriously that Christ has endowed a whole bunch of people. And a whole bunch of places. To represent him. And so if some of you are not called to preach. You're called to be amazing accountants. And mothers. And coaches. And skilled electricians. And all manner of other things. And you do those things as if you were doing them. For your king and savior himself. I hope you can believe that. I hope you can live that out. And hear the apostle Paul's word. If you knew Jesus was coming back tomorrow. What would you do? Go out and be his people in all the ordinary things that you do because he's in all the ordinary things that you do. Amen.